I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. I know it sounds like the setup for a bad comedy routine. What's the role of morality in business today? But in an age where reputation matters, where a business's brand and customer connections can be ruined almost faster than you can say, tweet this, not just understanding, but doing the right thing is not just nice, it's a business imperative. But what is the right thing? For example, how should businesses balance social benefit with bottom line revenue? For whom does a business operate? And is there a place for morality in the boardroom? My conversation today is with someone who sits, as they say, in the room where it happens. Jules Coleman is one of the nation's preeminent moral philosophers. For years, he was the Wesley Newcomb Hofeld Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of Philosophy at Yale Law School. He then became the Senior Vice Provost for Academic Planning at New York University. Today, Coleman serves on corporate boards as a senior strategic advisor, bringing his decades of theoretical thought and analysis to the practical application of global business. Before my conversation with Jules, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thanks for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Jules Coleman. Jules, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Chris. So I guess we should start with the obvious, um, which is, one, what is a moral philosopher? And two, perhaps more significantly, what in the world does morality have to do with business boardrooms? Uh, well, that, those are two uh, very good questions, and I wish I could provide concise, short answers to both of them. But uh, let, me, let me begin uh, with the first. A moral philosopher is someone who thinks uh, deeply about a range of questions having to do with our moral life. Uh, and our moral life has to do with uh, a variety of different kinds of things, namely both our personal, our social, our political, and I'm our economic, and I'm inclined to believe our uh, business life. But in terms of... Uh, the broadest outlines, it would be we have a range of moral concepts, evaluative concepts, uh, like good, bad, right, wrong, uh, just, unjust, fair, unfair. We also have a range of moral sentiments of resentment, indignation, guilt, shame. I'm sorry, I'm focusing only on the negative ones. Joy, uh, happiness. We have... Uh, a range of normative concepts that are central to how we think about our relationship with others as well, like uh, harm, benefit, uh, uh, tr to treat fairly, treat unfairly, and so on. And so there are a range of different kinds of issues, which are issues that are a large part of our personal lives, our social lives, our economic and political lives. So, for example, what rights do I have that... That is, that other people would be wrong if they were to interfere with them. What is it that I must do in order to exhibit certain kinds of virtues, like kindness, generosity, courage, bravery? When is it appropriate for me to have certain kinds of moral sentiments or emotions, 
to feel resentment, to feel guilt, to feel shame, to feel remorse? What are the conditions under which it would be appropriate for me to forgive? And so on. Then there are a set of questions um, that we, we think uh, that are important about regulating our affairs with other people. Uh, when am I justified, if at all, in harming anyone? And of course, that's a very serious question. Uh, like the question, what is it to actually harm someone as opposed to merely offend them? Why is that difference between offending and harming important? Uh, when are we justified in harming? Uh, what are my responsibilities to come to the aid of others, benefit others, to provide opportunities to others? When is my providing opportunities to others a matter of charity or beneficence, and when is it an obligation upon me? When do I have responsibilities to come to the aid of others? People who think about these questions in a systematic way are moral philosophers, whether they have professional training or not. Um, uh, and I think there's a sense, therefore, in which we're all, to the extent to which we're reflective people, moral philosophers. And, and, and yet some of us, uh, meaning you, are, are likely... Uh, slightly better at it than others, uh, meaning me, and uh, you, you, you know, surely spend more time and and thought on it. But you, you just hit on on a point as you were going through those. Um, I'm listening to you, and what's coming to mind is so I understand why these questions would drive a nonprofit. I understand how these questions might. Um, you know, drive my behavior in everyday life, interactions with friends, uh, with my family, you know, with my kids. Um, wh what do they have to do with business? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, perhaps in some ways the distinction between profit and nonprofit doesn't seem to, uh, to cut as uh, strongly as you might suggest. So you can have an education business that's uh, uh, formed as a nonprofit. And uh, if what you said is correct, then um, or if what you suggest is correct, then it would be appropriate for the education business as a nonprofit to be thinking about these kinds of issues with regard to their students, how they treat their faculty, what the responsibilities are to the various stakeholders and so on, what duties they might have to educate and so on. But it would be odd to think that if the education business had organized itself as a for-profit that it wouldn't have the exact same questions facing it. So I don't think that the distinction really is between for-profit or not for-profit. Um, if, if there's a distinction to be had, and I'm not absolutely sure that there is, it would be more, <clears throat> more based on the content of the business, not whether it's a business versus a nonprofit. So, so what types of companies do you work with? Well, uh, mo most of my relationships are with education businesses uh, and also with uh, investment groups. So how does a, a company, I understand they look around a boardroom and they say, okay, well, we've got a financial person, we have a marketing person, I know what we're missing. We're missing a moral philosopher. How, how does oh. that come about, and how do they? How, how do you get involved with the boards? Okay, well, that's interesting. I I guess I forgot the question a bit because it seems uh, that uh, uh, 
people aren't asking themselves that question very often. That is, how, how is that I need a moral philosopher? Well, the answer seems to me to be pretty straightforward. Uh, you have people, you have an organization, you uh, relate to the public in certain ways, you're, you're, you live under um, legal regulations and uh, rules, and uh, all of those things raise moral questions. One, with regard to the health of the organization, uh, that is, is the organization an organization that people enjoy working with, and does it is it regulated by norms? Um, are the norms norms uh, that display respect, concern for the interests of individuals who work there? Uh, I'm a great believer that uh, an, in, an industry or a company that is uh, regulated by norms and norms that reflect respect for the people who work there, concern for their well-being and the like, uh, is a healthier organization, more likely to be stable. Even if one thought about it entirely instrumentally, you wouldn't want most to devote most of your time in an organization to be making to be on searches to replacing people who will leave all the time. So you have to show a certain kind of appropriate regard for the interests of others, and they have to show an appropriate regard for one another. And the questions are, what are the norms that are appropriate to that environment? So that's one set of very simple questions that have to do with the overall health of an organization. With regard to implementing those norms, you certainly want the HR department to ask, what's our place in the lives of the uh, individuals who work for us? That is, what kinds of benefits should we be providing for them that are appropriate to how the world um, is organized now and what the world will look like five, 10, or 15 years from now? For example, is it appropriate for us to pr be providing educational opportunities? I mean, I just make this point because it seems to me a non-trivial uh, fact about the future, that while we've typically associated education with educational institutions and educational buildings, schools, that uh, education is going to be a lifelong activity for individuals, both for their personal growth, for their capacity to manage the world as it changes, and for other job opportunities that arise for them. Um, now, you can think of these things all from the point of view of self-interest, but you can also think of them uh, from the point of view, you're, you're a company, you're an organization, what is it, uh, what displays of care and concern and respect do you want to see inside your organization? Those are internal questions. For social related questions, the natural thought would be, um, what is it that you owe your customers, clients, consumers. Um, how much are you prepared to just rely upon notions that are very familiar that no doubt the economists on the board will bring up, which is let the market take care of it, that uh, uh, have adequate or sufficient competition in, a, in an area, and that will drive prices to their marginal cost. and. Um, that is uh, for other institutions, larger institutions like the marketplace to deal with. 
But of course, there are a whole range of other issues that you need to deal with. For example, safety. You make products that are risky. Um, it's very hard for uh, people in the market to gather all the relevant information about the safety uh, or risk associated with the, with the products that you make. What degree of disclosure do you think is appropriate? Are you satisfied with meeting the standards that regulations happen to have at any particular time? Are those adequate? Um, you know, they're not adequate with regard to your legal liability. So, for example, uh, I just happen to be a lucky person here to have on your board, and you certainly would want me on your board because not only am I capable of helping you think about what sort of disclosure you think is appropriate with regard to safety, it's also true that I've taught torts for 35 years, 30 years at Yale Law School, and in teaching torts, I can assure you that satisfying the minimum regulations is not a defense against a negligence suit if they, those standards which are expressed in the regulation are themselves not adequate, do not constitute the exercise of reasonable care. So that's um, your facing your client kinds of issues. How about your general social responsibility? Yeah. yeah. That is, you're, you're, you're a part of a community. As a, a corporation or a company, you've already begun to take on many of the roles that citizens typically have. You can make investments and exercise so-called free speech rights with regard to uh, your supporting certain kind of candidates in, um, in making contributions uh, during election periods. Uh, well, the, those, along with those citizenship-related rights, well, I would think, come a variety of, broadly speaking and loosely speaking, citizen-related responsibilities. That is, what is it that you owe the community in which you're located, the region in which you're located, and uh, the, the country as a whole? What do you owe them? And what do you owe, if you do business internationally, what do you owe the countries uh, in which you're located more generally. These are not just technical issues. They're serious issues that help define and create an identity of a company. But Jules, these moral questions that you're raising in a capitalist society, in an economic environment, in a business where in the end they stay in business or not based on uh, let's just you know take it to the extreme, their ability to earn $1 more than they spend net-net, right? They, that they can actually stay profitable. Why should not all of these decisions come down to the economics? How should I treat my customers? Well, I should treat them in a way such that they're going to return. And if they don't return, then I lose business. And, and so that's my incentive. How should I treat the society locally? Same thing. How you know much should I focus on the legal risks around my business? Well, same thing. If I don't uh, handle it uh, sufficiently, then I'll get sued. I'll have other issues. I'll have reputational issues that'll hurt my bottom line. Why? Why could slash should it not all be reduced to an economic question? Because a wouldn't that simplify things? Isn't the binary economic question a whole lot easier than the moral question? And and why why should I not boil it down in that way um, as opposed to having to do the hard work of thinking about it from a moral point of view? Okay, well I'll give you I'll give you my favorite answer to that. 
I don't believe that there are economic questions or economic or institutional uh, market questions that aren't themselves also moral questions. Explain that to me. Uh, so, for example, uh, maybe your uh, I'll give you an example, and then we'll try to generalize from this example, or if the example is not adequately suggestive. Uh, I think I think the example is adequately suggestive in, in the following way. You know, Ronald Coase won a uh, Nobel Prize for two important papers that he wrote. One was on the nature of a corporation, the other was on um, uh, the, uh, ultimately came the, the Coase theorem, the, the nature of externalities. And the example he used, uh, one of the examples, is you have cows and corn, and the cows come trample on the corn. And uh, the natural instinct, the, the question that uh, is raised is, uh, who, who's responsible for the cost of the corn, the, the lost corn? The more cows, the more lost corn. Okay, so this is now typically you might say you might hold a view that uh, there's an easy answer to this. The cows trample the corn and therefore the cows have to pay. All right. Uh, and therefore it's a, a cost to the rancher. Another view is, well, I should ask who came first. Were the, was the corn there first or was the cow there first? I mean, did the, the farmer come to the danger or did the rancher present the danger. It's a historical question. Well, Coase's got a famous theorem was uh, that we should think of this uh, question from the point of view, what's economically efficient? It doesn't matter as long as the costs of transaction are zero between the parties and they're fully rational because they will bargain with one another to produce the optimal amount of cows and corn. And this is a question of whether fencing in or fencing out um, is whether it's a cost, the damage to the corn is a cost of ranching or a cost of farming. And Coase says it doesn't really matter whether we call it a cost of ranching or a cost of farming it will ultimately be resolved by the market, uh, provided there's full rationality and full information. Now, it seems to me that all the things that we're talking about have that form. You're assuming uh, that the market will determine, you know, who bears the costs, that you have a competitive uh, market at a certain point, the liability or the cost uh, fall to the consumer unless there are market forces which force those costs to go to the uh, uh, the company. Now, my view is we first have to decide whether whether something is an externality or not is a question about who has what rights. So, for example, it's an externality of ranching only if the farmer has a right that you not impose liability upon him. Now, in a perfectly competitive market, that issue may not be important. That's what Coase's theorem 
is designed to show. If people were fully rational, had full information, and everything was perfectly competitive, that it's not that there wouldn't be a moral question, it's just that the moral question wouldn't matter. But as soon as you have less than full information, less than perfect competition, and less than um, full rationality and capacity to determine the costs, it matters whether individuals have the right, whether it's a right to uh, uh, a right against cows trampling on you or not. So the moral question determines what's an externality of your activity. And it matters when the conditions of perfect competition are not met. So leaving it up to a market is a very vague way because the first thing I want to know is how competitive is the market? How fully informed? How much information? What's the cost of search for the consumers, right? So uh, the fundamental economic questions make the moral questions irrelevant only under a very narrow set of conditions. Once those conditions are not satisfied, the moral questions are fundamental. But if we if we do live in uh, a marketplace or a series of marketplaces without perfect information, and, and I would argue that we do in theory, there's supposed to be perfect information in a, in a marketplace. That's what drives it. But frequently there isn't. And business A, you know, is kind of inclined to want to do the right thing and all those, right. um, really good behaviors that you described at the beginning of this conversation. And, and they, they hire a, uh, moral philosopher to help them stay on the straight right. arrow. And then they realize, but wait a minute, company B, my competitor, they ain't so worried about, uh, morality. They're not so worried about doing the right thing. And what what is the incentive then? Is a should a business worry about morality? And worries maybe not the right word. Should should a, should a business employ moral thinking in a marketplace where competitors might not be? Is one obliged to do the right thing when doing the right thing might put me at a competitive disadvantage? Uh well. That's, of course, that's obviously an excellent question. Uh, but here's, I have two thoughts about that. Yeah. The first one is, it would be nice to get people thinking about identifying what the right thing is and getting a discussion going in the group as to whether or not it's appropriate to do the right thing uh, under the circumstances where others are not. You know, we're <laughs> the conversation you and I are having is yep. assuming a lot of, a value that uh, a, a moral theorist or a moral philosopher has already presented because it has the board thinking about it's appropriate for us to think about what the right thing to do is as opposed to thinking that our only responsibility is to maximize shareholder value or some such thing yep. or maximize our profit. So we're far along already. That's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is uh, twofold. We already have lots of examples in which governments act as, let's say, imperfect moral agents by solving these kinds of coordination collective action problems where otherwise, I mean, basically what you've raised for me is uh, you've now put me in a prisoner's dilemma problem. Yes, which yes. Is, which is something like uh, everybody will defect 
all the time uh, because uh, uh, if the other guy defects, then the rational strategy for me to defect is for me to defect. If the other guy complies, the rational strategy is for me to defect because I don't absorb the cost that the other person is taking on. I am worried that you are forcing me into the bottom right-hand box. Exactly. Exactly. And when we have such prisoner dilemma problems, sometimes, sometimes, uh, those issues are thought to be appropriate domain for uh, a legal intervention, right? If, if, uh, if, in fact, the best strategy is to get everybody to comply and to get everybody to do, broadly speaking, the right thing. So the so your prisoner's dilemma is set up as do the moral thing, don't do, defect from doing the moral thing, right? And the fear is we're never going to do the moral thing because it's a prisoner's dilemma. And some people think, well, the best solution to that prisoner's dilemma is, of course, uh, for government intervention. But government intervention, of course, produces its own set of problems, okay? Yep. And so the question is, how can we coordinate our behavior with other individuals to do the right thing? Well, um, or should we just always find ourselves in a position of, um, of uh, not, not doing the right thing uh, as long as others are not doing the right thing? Or should we do the right thing despite the fact that others aren't because maybe we believe that we can create a business advantage out of that? You know, we can we can be the good guys and in, in, in today's society and uh, in, a, in an age where business reputation uh, has increased value perhaps than it did um, previously and, and reputational risk management is so important. Maybe maybe it forces one into, into that area. I mean, I... I I agree. I totally take your your one of the points that you made that this is exactly the conversation the boards should be having and having somebody like you in there, you know, with them probably encourages them to have that. And perhaps even they were self-selected a bit in the first place. They were the type right. of board or type of individuals who want to be grappling with these issues. So they bring in somebody uh, like you who can help them do so in a discipline, disciplined way. I guess my question is, what does that disciplined way look like? Is there a paradigm to struggle with these prisoner dilemma type issues? Or do you just kind of plow down the road and, and make the best decisions one can while going through it, but by being, but, but remaining cognizant of the choices and, and tension that fate, you know, that, that, that kind of inform the decision that you're making? Well, I, I, I think the, the following, uh, set of considerations uh, are likely to come into play. The, the first thing, there is a framework for thinking about this problem because there's a framework for thinking about the prisoner's dilemma generally, right? So, what, so uh, one framework is the following. Everybody, when you, the prisoner's dilemma is a problem for people when it's a single play when it's just one opportunity. And the question is, uh, I'm a company. How do I want to think of myself as a rational utility maximizer at each step, at each decision node for every decision I reach? Or do I want to think of myself 
as a rational constraint or a constrained rational utility maximizer. That is, I want to impose constraints on my on my utility maximizing because that ultimately will be a more beneficial strategy for me that I'll absorb certain kinds of costs, but ultimately it will be in my interest. That's a familiar way of thinking about it. And it goes something like this if we want to make it real. That is, norms uh, <clears throat> individually complying with norms when other people are not complying with norms or when there are no norms in place in general and other people aren't even thinking about the issue, they impose relative costs on me compared to other people. That's absolutely true. Yep. Right? That makes sense. Uh, so now the question is, why would it ever be rational for me to impose constraints on myself? <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's the question you're asking. Yes. And the answer to that is, who am I? Who am I? Mm. Uh, now, if you don't, if 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 you if you don't want to ask that question of yourself, now the one thing I could say is, surely, I want to impose some constraints on myself, whether or not other people are doing so, because I want my organization to be healthy, a happy place for people to work, and those costs are well worth taking for me. They're well worth taking for me up to a point, of course. If, if what I had to do is provide free college education for all the people who work there would be, um, uh, and for their children, it would be extremely expensive and I couldn't do it and I'd be out of business and so on. So I obviously look for some limitations, no matter what the competitive advantage, you know. Now, I think, of course, there's a competitive advantage for me in doing this. And that competitive advantage is workers who are higher skilled workers will be more interested in working for me because I provide a healthy environment for individuals. And you see this, you know, some version of this out in Silicon Valley where all these companies are uh, providing benefits of one sort or another that have to do with free food or uh, I know with law firms, for uh, people who work at the law firms, they get free rides home and dinner if they stay until 10 o'clock or something along these lines. Now everybody does that. Um, but, you know, the first person who did it, the first mover, the first mover, mm -hmm did it for reasons that it was either it would provide a competitive advantage. I doubt that that was true. I doubt that they thought it would provide a competitive advantage, that they would get the, be the best students from Yale Law School. They weren't getting them before. Now they're going to get them because they're going to get free dinner and a, a free ride home in a, in a uh, chauffeured car if you stay until after 10 o'clock. I think they thought it's, <laughs> it's the right way to treat your people you have working God knows how many hours a day. Uh, and to keep them happy and healthy and uh, well-functioning, and it's otherwise unfair to them, okay? Um, so one thing you do is you get to do this, which uh, w because sometimes it does set a com provide a competitive advantage, and sometimes it does set a norms about what kind of internal institution you want to be, all right? And now the question is, what about externally? What about... What about providing information about risk or about products that, pro that um, involve levels of risk that other people are not providing, that other companies are not providing? Well, it seems to me one thing you could be doing is 
uh, from a purely self-interested point of view is you can uh, it's not you you are reducing your legal liability to a an extent in which you're giving fair warning when other people are not yet giving fair warning you're giving people full disclosure when other people are not giving full disclosure so you're absorbing some costs in order to do that perhaps but you are potentially reducing your legal liability but more than that you're letting people know that uh you are being honest and transparent with them and other companies are not you could do it for the right reasons and it could still turn out to be a non-competitive a competitive advantage ultimately but from the point of view of defining what kind of institution or company you are you are always have to make that choice you always have to make that choice and you do it incrementally i'm not saying you walk in and you say i'm going to comply with everything that i think is morally right in every conceivable manner in every conceivable way but i can give you lots of other little examples in which uh, having a moral philosopher can su suggest something about the appropriateness of uh, rewarding charitable behavior uh good fellowship to uh employees uh why because these are worthy things that you it's appropriate to show respect and admiration for not just because they now have a a new watch or uh a better parking spot for a month or something like that you want people to internalize the idea that it's admirable behavior and you're taking note of it and you want people to take note of admirable behavior and so on some of the words that you use and and maybe even some of the adjectives that you use to describe the way companies um could behave admirable um you know good uh charitable um are adjectives that one would think under normal circumstances more about i think more about people than about companies you touched on this point a little bit earlier briefly and citizens united was kind of one of the references but from a and i i almost and maybe i can't so i want to separate the legal from the moral but if you you know go through it and you tell me you know no reback we can't then then you know I'll, I'll listen to you um but from a moral point of view are companies people uh well <laughs> from a metaphysical point of view they certainly aren't uh but um uh but they are composed of people and they have responsibilities they have liabilities they have rights they they have moral responsibilities and moral rights and i quite apart from whether they have legal uh rights and legal responsibilities but um uh so so for example groups which are comprised so if we didn't talk about companies and we just talked about groups mm -hmm. groups of individuals are uh, are not necessarily just the individuals who happen to be in the group at any particular time because those individuals can change and whole new people can come in and you're still this you know a particular group like uh uh the boy scouts or uh the new york yankees or uh, let's imagine that the new york yankees was not was not was not a business but just a, a team so the the team changes but the you know the the uh the boy scouts change and other organizations change their membership 
but there are all sorts of responsibilities and rights that go along with membership in that group. That so you moral rights, moral responsibilities, moral duties, uh, showing courage, being brave, um, being small-minded, something uh, we have a recent experience of. Um, these are things and attributes that are properly associated with behavior of groups. Now, a company is a particular kind of group, right? It has a core, it typically will have a kind of corporate structure. Uh, it will have often a hierarchy. Some are flatter than others um, in their organizational structure. But there's nothing about being a corporation that makes it the case that it's inappropriate to think of you is having a range of duties and responsibilities, even if we tend to associate that primarily with persons. And Jules, to, to close out, is there, does every business need a moral philosopher? And, and I don't mean that as a, a commercial, um, you know, or a, a publicity, you know, for you or, or people like you. Right. But I mean, in, in terms of, you know, is that a, or, or where we are in society, you know, we're, so for example, we're not the early 1900s. Um, right. and, and so, you know, we have now, uh, you know, greater sets of laws, greater awareness, um, around the different rights and responsibilities, uh, whether those are to employees or to customers or to society and communities, the, the full range of, of shareholders. Do we need moral philosophy as part of running a business today? Well, you know, I, I don't want to say yes to that because it seems too obvious uh, a form of uh, yeah, self-promotion. Exactly. I don't mean I don't mean it to be self-serving. No, I mean it to I, be you know you, you I, understand. I, right. Absolutely. And it's a it's a really good question, but I I'd rather reframe it in as a slightly different question. There, there are a lot of forces in play in a mature political economy that constrain what companies can do, right? So they're constrainers. They're constrainers. They're legal constrainers. There's uh, social constrainers. And there are economic constrainers. And many of those will have the salutary effect of getting companies to behave better than they, and I, by better, I don't mean, I don't assume that, I'm not assuming that they'll behave badly otherwise, but they'll, let's just say, they'll be more likely to conform to what we would think would be an appropriate or justified or fair way of interacting with the various stakeholders or people who are affected by what they do. There are a lot of constrainers that will drive companies towards that. But that's as a constrainer. It's not as part of the self-identification and motivation of the company. If we rely entirely upon that form of incentive structure as opposed to self-reflection, right? It's very similar, you know, none of these analogies are perfect. They're not intended to be perfect. They're just supposed to be suggestive. Mm -hmm. Oliver Wendell Holmes said we should think of the law from the point of view of the bad man, the person who in the absence of the law 
is likely to do something that we would prefer or desire that he or she not do. And so that we have to put law in place from the point of view of the justification of the law as constraining a person who would otherwise not be inclined to do what we want them to do. Another view about the law is the one that I'm pressing. Let's think of the law from the point of view of the uncertain person who wants to do the right thing but doesn't know what it is. Let's think of our companies not from the point of view of putting in place lots of external constraints elsewhere, relying on law, newspapers, social arrangements, all of which are important to uh, have the behavior of companies be more socially uh, sensitive, impactful, fair, just. Let's think of companies from the point of view, especially large companies that are extraordinarily impactful in, in, the, in the areas in which they are, they live, in the regions in which they are uh, central, and in the world, large companies. Let's think of them as asking the question, I want to do what's just and fair. I want to do what works to the benefit of a large number of people. I want to be charitable and beneficent where appropriate. I just don't know what it requires of me. Not, not I, I want to be informed. I want to be informed. Mm. That's what that's what the moral philosopher does. It gets you informed and gets you to think about your motivation, your self-identity, your place in society, rather than assuming that what you're out to do is maximize your profits against the range of constraints. Because all you're doing from the perspective that you articulated, not you personally, but the one that you're offering up as an alternative, mm -hmm. is just more things that are constraints against which I optimize. And, and what are those what are those conversations like? How do the businesses how, how do business people react when they have the opportunity to have those kinds of conversations? Well, actually, I think people find it extremely valuable. So, for example, uh, you know, without talking about a company that I, um, that I sit on the board, it's, it's a company that's going to be in 40 cities around the world. Right. Yeah. So it's, gonna, it, it's it, it is going to have innovation centers in 40 cities around the world. It's going to bring bringing entrepreneurs and young people filled with ideas in 40 different locations around the world. Right. So it's going to be in a variety of different kinds of cultural settings. And to be norm governed is completely different in this regard because it makes you sensitive to what are the norms in particular countries around the world, in particular regions, in how we set up the building, how we set up the classrooms. Same thing in education. I, I consult with a large education company that is going to be in 35 city, uh, um, 30 to 35 schools, K through 12, around the world. Mm. And they're 
there are a range of moral questions which have to do not only with uh, uh, the culture, right, which are enormous issues in education, and academic freedom of faculty members, right, but also responsibilities that we owe to students who we want to have travel from place to place. So people welcome these kinds of issues. I know that Apple, for example, had hired a friend of mine uh, um, who, from Stanford, who is a, a political philosopher, moral political philosopher, because they're interested in these kinds of issues themselves. And I think they have a whole division of people who are thinking about these kinds of issues. So, you know, uh, does everybody, it's like, it's a funny question. Can everybody afford to have a moral philosopher on board? <laughs> Makes it sound like, you know, <laughs> well, you, you know, if you think of moral philosophers in a certain way, can everybody afford to have a crook on board? No, yeah. because they'll kill the reputation. So can everybody have a moral philosopher on board? You know, they're going to cost us so much money in so many ways. Well, no, you don't have to listen to the moral philosopher and do it. The moral philosopher, the moral philosophers are going to tell you what to do. The moral philosopher is going to help you thinking about what kind of company you are and what it is you, um, where you're situated in the world and not allow you to simply say, because I'm a company and I have shareholders, public or private, my job is to maximize their outcomes. That's, that, that is a mistaken conception of what a company's place in the world is. Uh, and so uh, that's, that message is more important to me than the message of whether you have a moral philosopher on board. Uh, but I, I, I do think having the discussions inside the boardroom are valuable. Jules, thank you. Thank you uh, for your time and, and for your insights. Um, it's absolutely my pleasure, Chris, and uh, I hope that your audience finds this uh, of interest and value, however they may disagree with me, and if it stimulates discussion with them, that would be great. I would appreciate it. 